0: This is the Scottish Football Citizen, bringing you the best of Scottish football from the past. I'm Andy Kerr, and this week I'm joined by Jim Orr to mark the 40th anniversary of the death of Bill Shankly, one of the most successful British football managers of all time. Shankly started off playing football in his home village of Glenbuck, as well as having a look at the history of Shankly's association with Glenbuck. I also spoke to Keith Robinson, an Ayrshire-based Liverpool fan who idolises Shankly.
1: Before we get started, we have this week's dose of trivia for you. Under the management of Glenbuck native Bob Shankly, which team did Dundee play against in the semi-final of the European Cup in 1963? We'll give you the answer at the end of the podcast.
0: Aroused by blustering winds and spotting thows, and money a torrent down the snowbrew rows, while crashing ice, borne on the rolling spate, sweeps dams and mills and brigs out to the gate, and from Glenbuck down to the ratten Quay, old air is just one lengthened, tumbling sea. An extract from The Brigs of Air by Robert Burns, which mentions Glenbuck. Walking along the road to Glenbuck in Ayrshire, you can't help but feel a sense of isolation. While traffic passes by along the road from Ayr to Edinburgh in the distance, and the odd rambler comes past the nearby Glenbuck lock on the River Ayrway you wouldn't know that there had once been a thriving community of people here. All you seem to find at the site of the village these days are remnants of the past. Old pit shafts, The remnants of old open cask mines that caused many of the buildings here to be demolished, the supports of the old railway viaduct that went through here to Lanarkshire. There is almost nothing left of the village as it was at its peak. Only four houses in this whole area are still occupied. Glenbuck really does seem like the kind of place to come to to get away from it all. At one time you would have gone anywhere but Glenbuck to get away from it all. Like many villages in the coal mining counties of Ayrshire and Lanarkshire, Glenbuck owed its existence to the Industrial Revolution which changed Scotland immeasurably in the 19th century. The nearby loch was built as a dam in the early 1800s to power cotton works in cotton by a workforce made up of French prisoners of war from Britain's wars against Napoleon. Eventually, Steam power became the order of the day, and in order to supply the country's many factories and steam trains, coal became of massive importance to the country as a whole. Glenbuck was rich in coal, and a mining village was built to house the many workers who came to work in the pits. There was also the Glenbuck Ironworks, which built the rails that were used in the first steam railway in Scotland, opened in 1812, running between Colmarnock and Troon. As the century rumbled on, there were around 2,000 people living in the village at its peak. Like all villages and towns, there were shops, pubs, a church, and with the advent of association football came the desire to have a local team. And so, along came the famous Glenbuck cherry pickers. Formed in the early 1870s as Glenbuck Athletic, the club was formed to give men who worked in the mines an outlet for leisure and enjoyment on their weekends off. At first, the term Cherry Pickers was just a nickname, and one theory as to how the nickname came about was due to some men from the village having served in a regiment known as the Cherry Pickers during one of the Boer Wars. In all likelihood, the name comes from mining, just like everything else from Glenbuck. One of the jobs that some miners had was separating the stones from the coal as it came out of the ground on a conveyor, and the men who did this were known as cherry pickers by other miners, and the name seems to have stuck. The club were relatively successful in Ayrshire Junior terms, winning three Ayrshire Junior Cups between 1890 and 1892. But what's remarkable about this small village is that it produced over 50 professional football players. Several of these players went on to become Scotland Internationals and represent the Scottish League in League Internationals. And this brings us to the most famous of all the Glen families.
1: Living in a street known as the Monkey Row, the Shankly family had ten children. Five boys and five girls. And all five boys would go on to become professional footballers. Four would play for the Cherry Pickers, Alec. Jimmy, John and Bob Shankly all played for the local side, while the father, John Senior, was the club secretary. I had a great interest in football despite never playing the game at any level. The brothers made up one-tenth of all the professional players who came from Glen Buck. Alec played for Ear United and Clyde. Jimmy played for Sheffield United and Southend United. John played for Portsmouth and Luton Town. And Bob played for Allo Athletic and Falkirk, before going to have a successful career in management with Third Lanark, Dundee and Hibernian. There was one other brother in the family of ten that we've not yet mentioned, and that is the most famous Shankly son of all. Born on the 2nd of September 1913, William Shankly was the ninth child in his family and the youngest boy. Known as Willie to his family, but as Bill to the wider world, he grew up in the shadow of the Ayrshire Hills that contained vast seams of coal. Bill was the only Shankly not to play for the Cherry Pickers, despite having a try for them, as the team was winding down at that point. It was another junior team called Cronbury, which was located near to Cumnock and Lugar, that Bill would start his career with, before moving on to Carlisle United and later Preston North End. Bill also represented Scotland 12 times, with seven of his caps coming in wartime international games. Unfortunately, Like so many young footballers in Britain at the time, some of the best years of Bill's footballing life were robbed from him by the Second World War. Despite this, he still picked up an FA Cup winner's medal in 1938 as his press inside defeated Huddersfield Town after losing in the 1937 final. Bill's playing career resumed after World War II and he retired from playing in 1949 to focus on management. He returned to the first club he played with, Carlisle United, and managed them for two seasons before moving to Grimsby Town. A spell at Workington followed, but so far nothing particularly glamorous. Following his time at Workington, he moved on to Huddersfield Town, where he managed a young Dennis Law and Ray Wilson. A man of Shankly's ambition would not settle for second best, and despite his efforts in developing players such as Law and Wilson, for them to be sold on for big money, the Huddersfield board did not replace them and this frustrated the Irishman. After defeating Liverpool in the FA Cup in 1959, their chairman Tom Williams approached Shankly and asked him to be their manager. When Shankly arrived in Merseyside, he found a club that was very much down in the dumps. Liverpool was a club that was lying machine in the second division, living in former glories, in the shadow of Everton, in a stadium and training ground that needed upgrading. He got to work quickly by demanding that his new paymaster spent money on Anfield and the training ground at Melwood, and most importantly, he formed a strong bond with the Liverpool supporters, whom he regarded as being similar to the natives of Glen Buck from back in his youth. Finally, with the support of a board who were prepared to spend money to ensure success, Shankly's star really began to rise. After stabilising the club with his initial work, Shankly then took Liverpool out of the second division and immediately mounted an assault on the first division title. Scottish players such as Ron Yates, Tommy Lawrence and Ian St John were instrumental in the rise of the club and Shankly celebrated his first major honour as a manager when the Reds won the league in 1964. The following year, Liverpool finally shook off their FA Cup hoodoo by beating Leeds United in extra time in a dramatic final that saw Ian St John's jackknife header bring the cup to Merseyside. Another league title would follow in 1966 and the club went from being also runs in their own city to being one of Europe's finest clubs. Where the European Cup ultimately evaded Shankly, his 1973 side lifted the UEFA Cup against Germany's Borussia Mönchengladbach. Another FA Cup win came along in 1974 when Liverpool defeated Newcastle United at Wembley, but weeks later the football world was shocked when Shankly announced that he was retiring and handing over the reins to his assistant Bob Paisley. Despite his retirement, Shankly tried to stay active and involved in football, sometimes even joining children in Liverpool for a kickabout if there was no other football going on. There are many who say he retired too early, and this may well have been the case given his interaction with supporters who saw him as a complete football addict. While some former players and managers sometimes fall victim to traditional vices such as gambling and drinking after they retire. Bill Shankly simply loved football and used to claim that when he died, he wanted to be the fittest man who ever died. In typical Shankly fashion, he was almost true to his word. At the age of 68, Shankly suffered a heart attack and was rushed to hospital in Liverpool. While he at first seemed to stabilise a few days later, he suffered another severe heart attack and sadly passed away. said had entered a period of extended mourning. And the short waves of the lost or titan of the game were felt across the country. In his fifteen years at Anfield, he'd taken a shell of a club and turned it into European Colossus. The ethos of Shankly can be traced all the way back to his roots in Glenbuck. And many Liverpool fans make the pilgrimage each year to the site of the former mining village, where the hero grew up and learned his trade. Shankly and the Glenbuck cherry pickers. honoured at Glenbrook with plaques and the village has almost become an outdoor museum. Shankly's memorial stone is always surrounded by all manner of red white Liverpool mementos and tributes. There are many Liverpool fans who argue that the successes of the club even to this day can date back to the work that Shankly did.
0: One of these fans is Liverpool lane Keith Robinson. Originally from Liverpool, Keith now lives in Ayrshire and as one of many countless devotees of Bill Shankly. Here's what happened when I sat down with Keith. When did you become a Liverpool fan? Well, Andy, I would
2: normally um I normally answer that by saying that I consider myself to be a lifelong Liverpool fan, but I suppose the um the more true and specific answer is from about the age of um seven. Um just to let you know a little bit about myself, I was born. Um at uh, Oxford Street Maternity Hospital in Liverpool, right in the centre of Liverpool, Liverpool 1, uh, 12th of January 1966. I'll say that year very quietly in these parts, perhaps I should refer to it as the year uh, preceding 1967 might be more appropriate. But um, the eldest son, my my dad was Tom, uh, a Liverpool docker, and my mum Pat, and they were originally from the bootle area of liverpool and um, we lived um just in the next district along which is uh, a district called uh Litherland. so i went to the local primary school it was uh, called english martyrs in in liverland um and it was about that age that you go from the actual infant school up to the up to the junior school so uh definitely seven years of age um is my first memories and they say that you always remember your first um football match and you will I remember my dad uh, taking me to my first game, which was quite remarkable in itself because my dad wasn't a huge um, football fan. Uh, His thing was swimming um, and uh, life-saving, he did. Um, But um, my uncle Eric had managed to get these um, two tickets for this game. And it was, um, I think I mentioned it was Brian LeBone's testimonial match. So Brian LeBone was an Everton player and his testimonial match, um, it was on it was Tuesday the 13th of March 1973 and uh, Everton were play in Liverpool so uh, how, how my Uncle Eric came by these tickets is a bit of a story in itself because Uncle Eric used to work for um, DER that were a TV um, rental sales company and the company got a job uh, to go to Anfield and install, install a new television so Uncle Eric that's the job for me I'll go there I'll do that um, he went and uh, while he was installing the, the television and um, doing the the test screen bit, um, in walks M- Mr. Shankly. So he just put the test screen on, um, and Shankley says to him, Uh, that's a lovely shade of blue, that is Eric, but don't ever tell anybody I said that because I'll I'll, I'll deny saying it, <laughs> um, so uh. Anyway, before Uncle Eric did, did the job and um, his reward was uh, Shankly sorted him out with these two tickets for Brian LeBone's testimonial match and uh, my, my dad agreed to take me um, and uh, you know it was a midweek a midweek night it was dark it was it was it was March it was under the floodlights um, and you know from that moment I was I was hoot. you know going to the games Um that season, Liverpool went on to win the league in 73. And uh, they also won the UEFA Cup that year by beating Bruce back over two legs, uh, 3-2 on aggregate. The same, the same year, um, we used to have family holidays at Butland's holiday camps. And the nearest, the nearest one to us being situated in Liverpool was uh, one in a place called Purfwelly in uh, North Wales. And uh, we were on holiday there in the summer months. And lo and behold, who, who appears, and this is, this is obviously all organized by the, by Buttons, both Kevin Keegan and Steve Highway uh, appear. Um, and it's just a, a sort of, you know, meet the fans, get your photograph taken with them, buy the photograph. What I always remember about that occasion was that I was desperate to get their autograph. And I'd gone to, um, I gone to one of the public toilets there and got a, Couple of sheets of uh, toilet tissue, and uh, expecting them that this was what they were going to sign. But um, you know, thankfully, they were better equipped with uh, with a pen and pad. Um, so I would, see, I would say 1973 is my first uh, my first memories and the
0: You mentioned obviously um, your uncle Eric installed the TV there, and he met Shank's himself. When did you first become aware of Bill Shankly, the person, the manager?
2: yeah i think it was probably about and in 73 i knew he was the manager but I, I probably didn't appreciate um you know what he meant to the to the fans um so I started supporting them and um, going and going to games um after that uh, match in 73 and uh, probably by the end of the next season 1974 uh liverpool got to the uh, fa cup final that year and uh, they played uh, Newcastle United in the cup final uh, at the time um, uh, Newcastle United had a centre forward uh, Malcolm McDonald and Super Mac was his nickname and uh, he'd he'd spouted his mouth off a little bit before you know before the game but um, uh, you know th- this worked very much in uh, Shankly's favour and and and, yeah, and and in his uh, psychology and the way you know the way he goes about things and they just uh he just played Newcastle off the park, and Super Mac didn't even get a, a sniff of the ball, you know. So, um, so I would say I would say 1974, about a year later, was the um, was the time I appreciated what uh, what Shankly meant to the to the fans. I also remember going um, after they'd won the cup um, and they they brought the the cup back to Liverpool, and of course there's a a, a parade, a victory parade. And uh, a civic reception, and I badge my dad. Please take me. Please take me to this. Um, so good enough, good enough. He took me, and um, every, everything was set up on a platform just outside uh, St George's Hall in Liverpool, which is directly opposite uh, Lime Street Railway Station as you come into Liverpool. And um, I always remember the, the 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 story from that was that um, just before he took to the to the microphone. Shankly, he called over two of his players, and the two players he called over were Steve Highway and Brian Hall. Now, these two were regarded as the um, the educated players within the within the team. They were both studying um, through the Open University, and uh, Shankley says to them, uh, "Who's that Chinese leader, the one with all the, you know, the the wise sayings?" And the you know they looked at him a bit puzzled, thinking that the boss had actually lost it, and. Uh, he said, "You mean Chairman Mao? Boss? That's the that's the very man. That's the very man." So of course Shankley, as part of his speech, um, takes to the mic uh, and says words along the lines of, "You know, Chairman Mao had a very famous Red Army, but it's nothing like the one I see before me here stood today." You know, which always um, was a quote that always stuck with me as I'm sat on my my dad's shoulders at the age of eight years old. You know. <laughs>
0: You've mentioned there a wee bit about Bill Shankly and some of his uh, character traits as well. What does Bill Shankly mean to you as a Liverpool fan? I, I,
2: th- I think he's the most, um, you know, the one person that personifies Liverpool. Um, when he came to when he came to Liverpool in uh, 1959, uh, Andy from um, Huddersfield Town, uh, Liverpool were a bit of a sleeping giant. You know, they were they were they were they were low down in the second division, but it was as if um he knew that, that that was his place the place to go He said it's a place where people eat and sleep and drink and live football and and that that, that has to be where you know where my place is um but i think it's it's more that you know the the, the 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 qualities of the man he's you know honest straight talk and loyal um demanded demanded that his players um Ran through a brick wall for him, you know, and then even did a little bit more after that. Um, but it was this—it was just this rapport he seemed to have, not only with his idea was that the the players and the fans should be as one, you know, and and by that you're going to achieve much more. Um, Probably um, my favourite Shankly Shankly quote, Andy, the the quote that I like is the one where where Shankly says, um, the the socialism I believe in is is not really politics. It's a way of living. It is humanity. Uh, I believe that the only way to live and be truly successful is by the collective effort with everyone uh, working for each other and everyone helping each other and everyone having a share of the reward at the end of the the day. Um, It's the way I see football and the way I see life. And I think that could almost be a motto for for Liverpool Football Club. Um, That was the the ethos that he installed back in the day. And I would still say that to this day, um, I would like to think, although things have changed, um, that 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 is um, still very much the case.
0: Do you think that his upbringing in Glenbuck shaped his views to be like that, given the harsh nature of life there?
2: Absolutely. Um, he was, you know, the youngest of uh, five brothers. Uh, he uh, left school at 14 and inevitably um, he had to go and work at the pit. I think for the first six months he worked there, he, he worked above ground, but, but, they, but they sent him, you know, to work. Uh, down below ground, and uh, you know, this was this was before pre-national pre-nationalisation in the coal board, and, and the, the conditions were absolutely horrific. I think as well, you know, his parents were of the nature that his father was um, keep fit type of guy, um, and believed that you should you know keep yourself as fit as you can. And uh, his mother Barbara, you know, she was the type that um, she didn't have very much, but what she had, she would share with you. And she would make sure that everyone was all right and and um it couldn't have been easy for them, you know, having 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 the ten of them. <laughs> um I believe um the father John was um a, a postman in um his younger younger days and uh later to become a tailor um of some some repute, I believe. But um but life must have, yeah, life must have been uh, uh, pretty tough for them. But um it's it's quite amazing how this one small village has you know produced um, footballers and athletes of of, of of
0: of this nature, you know. Absolutely. Now, you moved up to Scotland from Liverpool. When you moved to Scotland, were you aware of Glenn Buck, both in terms of the village itself and of the legacy of producing all these players? i
2: I'd, I'd, I'd probably have to say no to that i was aware of i was aware of the bill Shankly connection i was aware of of it being his birthplace um but i think it's it's only since i've been up here and i've you know looked at the history of the of the place that um that you know i i realized the significance of the place um i got married in nineteen ninety one and um at our wedding reception down at the town um, at the Pearceland in, in, in Troon. My brother-in-law, who's not um, a, a particular football fan at all, but he said a few words and, and his speech was very good because we had all these people coming up from Liverpool to Ayrshire and he and he drew on the connection between um, Liverpool and Shankly and the Glenbrook connection. But I would say my knowledge of the actual village itself has... Um, Broadened since my since my time up here, rather than down in Liverpool.
0: Now you've been to visit Glenbuck. Buck. How many times have you been, and what were your visits like when you were there? Yeah,
2: I've been a couple of times. I mean, the first time I was just I, I was actually on on the road to somewhere else, and I, and I just needed to because I was passing. I just had to had to stop, and uh, I think the I think the monument um, that there was at the side of the road at that time, but um, so subsequent to that, my youngest son, Sean, he was quite keen to, to, to go and see the place. Um, so we, you know, identified a convenient date and, uh, we, 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 made it as a pilgrimage almost, you know, and, uh, we went and we, we, we saw the, 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 the monument, the still monument that's been erected by, by the fans there. Um, we got the usual, photographs beside her. We went for a wee walk down to the, uh, the lock that was there and there was a chap, um, I think he'd been doing a bit of fishing and was having a cup of tea and had a fire going. And, and we got chatting with him and, you know, it, it, it came as no surprise to him, I think, that, 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 that we were there because of the, the Shankley connection, because it must happen, you know, fairly... Um, regularly or fairly fairly frequently but he said oh the you know the the real guy you need to speak to he's he's on the water at the moment he's just um checking i think there was a, a swan's nest or something that they needed to keep an eye on and uh anyway, when this chap came back in we we spoke with him and uh you know his knowledge of the um of, of the local area and in particular the history of the the glen Book, uh cherry pickers was was quite phenomenal in fact he he, he took us to his car, and and in the the boot of his car, he he, he basically had like a bit of a library um, with the history, and he showed us uh, laminated photographs um, of the, the cherry pickers that dated back to the late eighteen hundreds. And he, he asked me to try and identify a guy there, um, and I, I couldn't, but it was it was actually um, Bill Shankly's dad, uh, John Shankly. Um, so. it, it it actually made our day, you know, meeting these um, local chaps and um, getting more of the local history. I seem to remember them saying that they were that they were hopeful trying to get some sort of museum to Shankley and Glenburg, um set up. Although um, they didn't feel that that might happen at Glenbuck, and it might have to be somewhere like you know the likes of Muirkirk, for example. But um, you know, I am aware of um that there the, are like Liverpool supporter organisations like subgroups. Uh, for example, there's one called the The Spirit of Shankley. And 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 these groups do excellent like charity work and what have you, and um and they're the types of groups that would, you know, promote the likes of Glemble and promote visits from supporters from Liverpool coming up, you know, to see where um the village where Bill Shankley um grew up, you know.
0: Do you think it should be a, a site of pilgrimage? You mentioned it was like a pilgrimage for yourself being a Liverpool fan. Do you think all Liverpool fans should make the effort at least once in their life to go and see Glenn Buck as it is now?
2: I, I think so. I think so because you, you know you you do get something from. It. I mean, I it, it was for me it was almost like going to church. You know, that's how I felt. It was um, it was spiritual. Um, so uh, I would I would. Advise and recommend anybody who was thinking of making the trip north and visiting Glenbuck to to do it absolutely.
0: And finally, how important do you feel it is that Glenbuck is preserved and remembered the way it is just now?
2: I think it's absolutely um, imperative. You know, this um, this tiny mining village, you know, which I think at, at its height had a population of maybe a thousand. Um, round about the time when Bill Shankly was born in 1913, just prior to the First World War, the, the population had already um, started dwindling and was maybe about 600. Yet this little village produced in excess of 50 professional footballers. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and you know, I suppose in addition to that as well, you know, the, the when you look at the managerial career that. Shankley went on to have um haven't played not too far away, just over the border into Lanarkshire. Yeah, yeah you know, um Jock Steen and, and Matt Busby. He came from this very small um triangular area, you know. Um but uh, yeah, no, I think I, I think that I would like to see um Glenbok preserved and um they could use, you know. Shankly as um, a reason to have people visit the place.
0: Thanks to Keith for speaking to us. On the 29th of September 2021, thousands on Merseyside and beyond will have one man in their thoughts, a former miner from a tiny village in Ayrshire that has now been lost to the ages. While the Shankly brothers achievements in football are all notable, There is one of them that will be remembered as long as football is played in the city of Liverpool, and that is the one and only Bill Shankly. Here's to you, Shanks. Without you, who knows how football history would have been different? We'll never know, but one thing's for certain. A world without Bill Shankly would certainly have been a much duller place to live in. We'd like to bring your attention to the exploits of one of our Football Memories volunteers, Douglas Kenny. Douglas completed a memory walk in aid of Alzheimer Scotland and Football Memories Scotland last Friday, where he visited all of Glasgow's senior and junior grounds, in addition to grounds such as Cathkin Park and Shawfield, which no longer host football. While he was stopped at Handon Park, I managed to catch a quick word with him. I'm speaking with Douglas Kenny outside of Hamden Park. Douglas is a Football Memories volunteer who has done a rather long and inspiring memory walk. Can you just tell us a wee bit about that, please?
3: Well, I started at half past nine this morning and the objective is to visit as many football grounds as I can round Glasgow. So I started off at St Rocks over at Proven Mill and uh, via Peters Hill through Springburn, Ashfield, Fir Hill, Mary Hill then over to the south side and started at the St Anthony's, Penburb, Eyebrooks, and then from Eyebrooks to Hamden.
0: Excellent and you've also got a couple of stops still to go on your walk as well, is that correct?
3: That's correct, from here I'm going over the hill to the old Cathkin where Thirlanac have started playing again under a, a new you guys and then from there to Shawfield where Clyde used to play, Parkhead. Shettleson Juniors and finishing up at Bud Hill where uh, Glasgow girls play.
0: What was your inspiration to undertake this memory walk given that it's such a long distance walking between all these grounds throughout the city?
3: Uh, I've been involved with the Football Memories Project for five years now uh, where we meet on a regular basis and really just chat about football but uh, it, it's particularly Helpful for folks who are living with dementia because it bring literally brings back memories for them and, and uh, helps them to relax and brings a bit of chatter and variety into their life. And I've seen the difference that that makes having worked with the folks over these years. And I'm a keen football fan myself, so it all ties in.
0: Excellent. If people want to donate towards your uh, memory walk, uh, how can they do that?
3: Uh, there's a just giving type page which, uh, under Alzheimer Scotland, Memory Walk, Douglas Kenny. If you put that in his search engine, it'll come up to my page.
0: Excellent. Douglas, thanks very much for speaking to us and we wish you well for the rest of your journey for today, the rest of the stadiums you've got to go. Thank you very much. Well done to Douglas. And if you want to support his efforts, then you can still donate to his cause. Before we finish off this week we'd like to pay tribute to the late Jimmy Greaves, who sadly passed away last Sunday. While Greaves was an incredibly prolific striker for Chelsea, AC Milan, Tottenham Hotspur, West Ham United and England, he was also known as one half of the incredibly popular TV duo St and Greavesie, alongside Ian St John. Born in 1940 in London, young Jimmy was academically very bright, He was the head boy of his school as well as the school's football captain. Things could have all gone very differently for Jimmy, as his father Jim had arranged for a job for him at the Times in London as a copy boy. Instead, it was to be Chelsea who would be his employers, signing him at the age of 15 after impressing for Essex schoolboys, and he made his debut at the age of 17 against Tottenham Hotspur, and, naturally, he scored in his debut. His manager at the time, Ted Drake, thought that a lot of the praise Greaves was getting at the age of 17 was going straight to his head, so he made Greaves sit on the sidelines for six weeks to bring him back down to earth. When he finally got another shot in the team, he scored four goals against Portsmouth and cemented his place in the first team for good. An ill-fated stint at AC Milan followed. But a return to London at White Hart Lane would cement his reputation as one of England's greatest ever forwards. In nine years with Spurs, Greaves was scored 220 times in 321 appearances, as well as win two FA Cup medals and one Cup Winners' Cup medal. With England, he played 57 times and scored 44 times. When asked of his secret to scoring so many goals, he once answered, What I had to do was get in the box 500 times a season, 100 times I'd connect, 50 times the goalkeeper would save it, half of the rest would go in and 25 goals a season would do me, just by making sure I got in the box 500 times. Despite his success, Greaves was aggrieved not to be selected for the 1966 World Cup final against West Germany and while England celebrated their win, Jimmy and his wife Irene spent their evening on a flight to Mallorca for a well-earned holiday. Greaves and the rest of the England squad who were unused in the final were eventually given their medals at 10 Downing Street in 2009. And given he was a World Cup winner with England, you might assume that Greaves would come in for a bit of stick in Scotland. This wasn't the case however, as Greaves was a popular figure due to his exploits in the park, much like his England teammate Gordon Banks. After his playing career ended, Greaves fell victim to alcoholism that almost cost him his marriage and his family. But with the support of his wife Irene and his family, he was able to battle back and forge a new career as a TV pundit. It was around this time in the early 1980s that he made some TV show appearances with former Motherwell, Liverpool and Scotland player Ian St John. The two were first paired together doing analysis of games and realising that the pair had a natural chemistry together, ITV gave them their own show which was watched by millions on Saturday mornings before going to games all across the country. While St John would play the role of the straight anchor man, Greaves thrived in this environment with his sharp wit and stories of his playing days. While the show was very popular, even leading to the future US President Donald Trump conducting the English League Cup draw under their watch on live TV, the show was cancelled in 1992, much to the dismay of St John and Greaves. Jimmy Greaves sadly passed away on Sunday the 19th of September 2021 at the age of 81 and will always be remembered for his exploits on the pitch and his warm, quick-witted humour as one half of the most popular footballing TV duos of all time alongside his friend Ian St John. If you want to find out more about their time together on St and Greaves, you can listen back to episode 14 of this podcast where we took a look back at the life of Ian St John and looked at the pair's time together on St and Grievesy.
1: At the start of the podcast we asked which team, Bob Shankly's Dundee Dundee's side faced in the 1963 European Cup semi-finals. The answer is AC Milan. After winning the league in 1962, Dundee faced off against Sporting of Portugal and then under left of Belgium. Their reward was a glamour tie against the Italian champions, A.C. Milan, and the dark blues travelled to the famous San Siro in April 1963. Unfortunately they ended up on the wrong side of a 5-1 defeat, and Alan Cousins' goal was mere consolation for the Ds. In the return leg at Dens Park, Dundee did manage to record a famous 1-0 win over the Italian giants, as Alan Gilzean netted at all the only goal of the game. But the 36,000-strong Dundee crowd was unable to inspire a mighty comeback for their side. Had Dundee won the tie, the reward would have been a trip down to Wembley to face Benfica in the final. And given that Milan managed to overcome Benfica, who knows if Bob Shackley would have been able to make Dundee the first British European Cup winners.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of the Scottish Football Citizen. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And join us again next time when we'll be looking back at more of the best of Scottish football from the past. If you'd like an extra football fix in your inbox every Tuesday, you can subscribe to Football Memories Scotland's weekly newsletter, The Football Special, and receive an email full of excellent pictures and stories from days gone by. To find out more, email lindsay at lindsay.hamilton at scottishfootballmuseum.org.uk We'd like to remind our listeners that Michael McEwan's book The Ghosts of Cathkin Park is now on sale. Priced normally at £17.99 listeners of the Scottish Football Citizen can take advantage of 20% off for a limited time by entering the discount code cathkin 2021 on the Berlin website when buying the book. It's a must-read for any fan of Third Lanark or Scottish football history. The Scottish Football Citizen is written, edited and produced by Andy Kerr for Football Memories Scotland, in association with Altsameer Scotland and the Scottish Football Museum. Additional contributions from Robert Harvey, Jim Orr, Lindsay Hamilton and Richard McBearty. Additional material from BBC Sports Scotland, The Times of London and The Guardian. Special thanks to Keith Robinson for speaking to us.